Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here with Sarah Masaryk. And we have a very special interviewee today, John Tilton, an author. And we have two very special interviewers, Greta Masaryk and Elsa Cabot. Diane, it's pretty fun to have Greta and Elsa it here. Is. We were very excited to speak with John. We um, really appreciate his book, Please Return to the Lands of Luxury. And it's a fun book, but to be honest, the girls are particularly excited because they also really loved the book. And we realized it could be a little magical to have them here. Um, Some of our listeners may already have heard that Elsa wrote a review of this book and recorded it. And that that was really fun. So we wanted to make sure that we had Elsa come back. And I asked them to prepare questions in advance. And Elsa, how many questions did you say you have? Ten. <laughs> Ten. <laughs> I have six, but some of ours overlap. Yeah. Not all of mine are important. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, are you ready for a dozen questions? I am ready. I did a school visit about a month back, and they must have had 3,000 questions, so <laughs> I am prepared. Awesome. I'm prepared for anything. <laughs> awesome. Well, girls, do you know who's got the first question? Michael is my older brother, and I was working in the library, and we were working in the same room, and I was listening to Lands of Luxury, and he's like, copiacea? That sounds like it's a derivative of the Latin word copia, which means abundance. Is that true? Okay, so I love this because us authors, we put a lot of work into naming things. Mm. I pour, even just last week, I'm pouring hours into naming just little things that come up maybe once or twice in the book. And as I'm doing all this research, looking up Latin phrases on (laughs) etymology websites and naming websites, sometimes I just like bang my head against the wall and say, no one will ever appreciate (laughs) the time that I'm putting into this. So I'm so glad to hear that Michael uh, put together uh, how I came up with the name for Copiacea. Yes, that's exactly right. Copiacea for those listening who haven't read the book yet, is one of the lands of luxury. So yeah, Copia, like abundance. And yeah, it's. I thought it was a fitting name for one of the lands of luxury, which is what the kids call the, the places <laughs> that are not the trash island that they live. That's awesome. <laughs> also, he noticed that Fultrasa sounds like it's a derivative of a different Latin word that I can never remember. He's learning Latin. That means... Fulcio. Fulcio. He's producing this, so he's listening in, <laughs> which means to to support. Oh, interesting. Okay. So there's in my notes somewhere is how I came up with that one. I, I think I came up with that a slightly different way. So that's not the precise way I came to it, but it's, it's a combination of two things together. Uh, like I think Trasa is related to trash in something, but it might not. Be, I, I don't think it's Latin. So I jump around with what it is but so each land there's what the people from the trash island call it and then the people from the lands of luxury what they call it right. so everything kind of has right. two different names mm-hmm. so for the kids they call the full the trash island they call it yarborough ridge which sounds like garbage if you said it in slow motion like like garbage <laughs> but it's like yarborough <laughs> ridge that's how i came up with that one so it, there's just different ways you get to different things and then it's 
the way I get there, I try to relate it to whoever is calling it that thing um, to make it make the most sense. I did not get these questions on the school visits. <laughs> these, are, these are brand new questions that uh, that I'm excited that you have, but they're new to me. What a way to start. Yeah, yeah. especially I'm just thinking about the people listening who don't know anything about the book. And we're just they're like, like what? In the, the Latin roots of, of where I come with, with naming things. So. I think that the vast majority of our listeners are very interested in these kinds of details. So I think actually <laughs> you've probably delighted a lot of people right now. <laughs> well, you've delighted me. <laughs> yeah, it's funny too. I actually have a I have a name book. It's it's an old name book. I bought like old used edition of it. And as I'm going through, I, I use this to name some things too. And as I'm going through, I start finding stuff that's like Star Wars related. And so it's almost like this George Lucas was here type of feeling <laughs> where you page through and there's like Mustafar is like in there. It's like a name. It's like, oh, okay, I see. And that it's directly related to the movie. So I think I'm not I'm not alone with writers in terms of just using everything at my disposal to influence how to name things. But what's important is that it has some sort of meaning. So it's thought out. So it doesn't necessarily need to be all consistently from the same place or always use the same strategy, but it needs to sound right for the book. And then it also, for me, has to have some meaning behind it instead of just uh, just a random name. That's great. So girls, before we continue, I think maybe we should ask him a little bit about the book and how he came to write the book so that listeners have a little bit of context. Where did you get the inspiration for the book? Yeah, so first of all, the book is about a girl named Jane who finds a doll on an island of trash, and it has a tag that tells them to return it to what they call the lands of luxury, which we were talking about before. That's Copiacia to the other people who live far away from them. And they have to get past these robots, which are called the Metal Men, and they have to get across the ocean in order to return the doll. That's how the story starts. And the inspiration for the story is directly related to that plot. So I had a toy Rex from the movie Toy Story. It was battery oh. operated. Yeah. And my it was at my parents' house for years and years and years. And one day they talked to me and they said, hey, do you want this old Rex toy? They were trying to you know, clear out stuff, downsize, things like that. And I said, sure, uh, you know, Toy Story is one of my favorite movies, and I'd love to have that back, you know, with me in my house here in Florida. So I bring it home over Christmas, and when I get back, the way it works is like you twist its tail to make have it say a line from the movie. And I twist the tail, nothing happens, and I think, okay, well, obviously the batteries have died. So I open up the battery apartment to, to replace them. And I find that they're corroded. So the right. batteries just completely, ex they look all exploded. There's all this white gunk all over the place. And I just think, I don't want to touch this. This is probably like toxic. I don't want to take like years off my life because of like a toy. <laughs> so I just carefully put it in a garbage bag and I put it in the trash. And I thought out of sight, out of mind, I'll never be telling anyone on a podcast about what's happening <laughs> right now. <laughs> And so I get, I get it. I get it in the trash. I take it to the curb and I'm just minding my own business eating lunch. And then the garbage people come and they start taking it away. And I just have the scene from Toy Story 3 in my mind 
where literally the toys are like being thrown out uh, yeah. and they're going to like, you know, be incinerated at the garbage dump. And I just feel really guilty. So <laughs> in that moment, too, I just think about how when it went in the trash, I put the battery compartment back. You can't even see what's wrong with it. So I just imagined like a kid finding it at the garbage dump and thinking, why would someone throw this perfectly? Like it was in pristine condition other than the battery. And so I thought, oh, this would be so confusing to anyone that just saw it. Like, why would anyone throw this away? This is such a silly thing. And in that moment, I saw uh, Jane, the character in the story, but I didn't even see her with the Rex toy. I saw her with this doll with the tag and uh, that it said to return it to an address. And so from there, I just sort of leaned into that thought. And the story just sort of came to me the more I thought about it. And so what I like to do when I tell the story, especially during a school visit, is, you know, no one wants to have an experience that they regret where they're throwing out a toy or, you know, bad stuff happens to us, right? Um, And you can choose to dwell in the negative aspect of things. But if you lean into what's interesting about the situation or how you can grow from the situation or what good can come out of a situation, you know, for me, it led to a book idea. But in other categories of life, things are much more difficult than, uh, you know, battery corrosion on a childhood (laughs) toy. Uh, There's still a lot of positive things that you can take out of it in ways that you can grow from a negative experience. So Mm -hmm. I always keep that in mind with things that aren't just writing, but in life in general. And it's a good lesson. I mean, this is part of what's happening in the story is that you're conveying that the essence of that to the kids too. Yeah, I think that theme carries through Mm -hmm. in the story itself as well. Um, And there's other themes too. So in, but I think that's definitely one that's present. But you didn't run out and rescue him? It, it was too late at that point. Uh. It, the, the guilt set in as the truck was driving away. But if I, but Diane, if I did, I would, I, my mind would have been on trying to convince the trash people to help me. Like yeah. I would have never thought of the book idea. I'm sure Rex appreciates that. Well, but Rex might have been found by Jane, so you know. <laughs> so how did you go from the toy? you know, going to the garbage heap to kids living in a garbage heap? I think it it was just always there. Another piece of it was I remember dropping off a bunch of junk at one of these. It's like Goodwill, but it's like a local one Mm -hmm. um, that's run by some Christian organization in the area. Sure. And I remember them telling me at some point that they try to sell all the stuff, but what they can't sell, they send to like a third world country. And I was just like, this is so bizarre. Just like, like whatever junk that we don't want at all, just like ends up at a place where like people live and somehow maybe find value out of a t-shirt that no one here will buy or something like that because, you know, they don't have t-shirts. So, so that was part of the inspiration there that, you know, what's trash to us that no one sees any value in there's people in the world that do see value in that and are actually probably grateful to have it. Whereas to us, it's this junk that we don't want in our house anymore. Right. What book made you a reader? Mm. What book made me a reader? Okay. So I was a very reluctant reader actually when Mm. I was growing up. 
I love to read, but it was difficult for me to get into a book. And I always felt very overwhelmed by them. And so that's why for the first book in this series, I felt it was very important to have something that was short and sweet and the chapters were very digestible, something that I would have been able to pick up and handle as someone who wanted to read, but had trouble doing so. Sure. I would say the book that changed that a bit for me was the Harry Potter books, but it was almost more of like a cultural thing where everyone around me was reading it and... I had some reading comprehension on it the first time I read it, but it was more of like the feel that everyone is sort of, this is what everyone's reading. So I'm reading it too. Right. But then as I grew older, I appreciated that series a lot more, the more that I read it and the the more I, my reading level kind of coincided with it too. Is that also why some of your characters can't read? I don't know. Maybe subconsciously. Uh, There's always a lot of things that are subconsciously in there. And sometimes it might be a coincidence and other times not. So for example, my name's John Tilton and my middle name begins with an R. And my characters are in this book are Jane, Rodney, and Timothy. Completely unintentional, but that happened. So I don't know if that's something that's subconscious or if that's just a coincidence. And so I would say the same for a lot of things that are in the book, because even after I had published it, I started putting together other things that I was like, oh, maybe this and that, and this is what I think about that. And that's why I wrote it that way. But it's, I think it's important not to, as you're writing it, not to dwell too much on all of those things. Right. Because then I get in my own head and I'm (laughs) forcing it instead of just letting it breathe. Right, right. We interviewed Gary D. Schmidt last week. And one of the things we noticed in his books is there's a reoccurring minor character family, the herd family. They're in like 75% of his books, from the picture books all the way up, everything. It's like, there's another herd. It's herd of this generation of the 1980s and the herds (laughs) of the 1880s and so on. So we asked him, what is the, like, who are the herds? Like, who are they to you? Are they real people or what? And he said, (laughs) he told us this whole story about the, the cemetery where Emerson and Thoreau and Alcott are buried. And at the very end of the cemetery, there's a huge gravestone marker for the herd family. And so he said all those, and then there were markers for each person. And he just wrote down all those names and all those names have shown up in his books. And he said at one point Mm. he had family trees and it was all very complex. And then he said, Gary, stop it. This is nuts. (laughs) Nobody cares. (laughs) Well, except me. I was like, but I care. I care. I want to know who's related to who and how, but. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So I can see how the temptation might be to try to investigate what is, like, where am I getting this from? What, what am I doing with this? And maybe that like there's, there's that place where it's productive and then that place where it's distracting and you have to find that sweet spot. Like you can, well, at least, at least the way I write, there's sort of two categories of things. And this kind of goes back to the naming stuff that we were talking about Mm -hmm. with the first question, where there's some things that just the story just comes and that's how it is. And, and it's, unless there's like a, big plot point problem that I have to change something that came to me. I pretty much don't fuss with that. Just let the story come. Mm -hmm. But then there's other things like the naming or things that have to be done intentionally. There's, there's really no way around it. And that's Mm -hmm. where you can get in trouble overthinking it and 
trying to make it fit, you know, fit and yeah. be meaningful and all these things. Right. And I think it's worth spending time on it, but not worth going crazy about. But there are things you have to intentionally do. And there are things that are just kind of come to you. So when you chose the names for the children, were those intentional? Where did they come from? I did look up the names meaning. A lot of the names there came. So the, a book that I, I may publish eventually, the first book I wrote to completion that I is currently unpublished, I had like crazy alien names in it. <laughs> and uh, with the, the people who are reading it, it was always, it was tripping everyone up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was frustrated with myself on that, that I was trying to be too fancy. Mm-hmm. And so I said, you know what? The main character in this one is Jane. <laughs> like, it's like, just Jane, don't, yeah. like, yeah, just do something normal, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I think Jane's a great name. It is. Yeah. And, uh, and then Timothy, that came to me with like, he's the character who can read. It felt mm-hmm. just like a character that reads. It just like felt mm-hmm. like Timothy. And then, um, Rodney just came to me too. And then I looked it up and I forget the, precise meaning but it's like something about an island so i was like oh this kind of like fits in with the trash island and stuff like that so i and i looked up for jane and timothy too and all those they fit at least in some way and so i was like okay these are going to be the names and for mark at least part of his name first and maybe even first and last is inspired by some of the disney they have like the nine old men animators and uh mm -hmm. one of one of their names, one of them is a Mark. And so it's like things like that. You just kind of go to stuff. I'll go to stuff that I know yeah, and utilize that in some way as a type of inspiration. Again, something that it has some sort of purpose and it's not necessarily there for anyone to figure out, but there's a reason behind it, you know? Sure. Very cool. So how did the doll stay so clean yes. if she lost it when she was a child? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, now you're going to get into book three spoilers, which I've, been, <laughs> I've only outlined. <laughs> but the doll will be back in the third book. There are more things about the doll, and there's there's reason for that. So, yes, the doll is old, but there's a reason for that. It was thrown out recently. I'll at least say that. Oh, that's what I thought. <laughs> that was your assumption, Greta? <laughs> was that I was going to come back and that it was, must have been thrown out recently. Mm. Even then. But yeah, that's not, that's not even the second book. That'll be the third book. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. This is like you're hooking for the, for the third book. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to the first question, you said that you name everything intentionally. Why did you name the street that the um, doll is from Spring Blossom Way? And why is it number one? So, okay. So just because it's intentional doesn't mean there's like <laughs> like a scientific, like algebraic reason. But so I felt like spring, the feeling of spring is something that fits with the mood I wanted for the book because it's in this sort of semi-dystopian atmosphere, but I wanted it to all be very hopeful and this idea of like new beginnings. And so I liked the idea of spring. I actually, in book two, uh, there's one of the new last names of some new characters is Summerfield. 
And so that <laughs> has like the summer element to mm-hmm. it. And so uh, in the third book, I'll probably have some autumnal oh, yeah. type things in there. So, I, uh, so that's a, a piece of it at least. Um, and then I tried a bunch of different numbers. And again, I, I think it was maybe out of just simplicity, just have like one. Um, yeah, there might have even been a more specific reason, but again, I should probably keep better track because uh, a lot of things, a lot of things I'm always like, oh, well, I'll remember this forever. Yeah. But then it's like, okay, then when you're working on the next book, it's just like empty out everything that doesn't matter for the second book writing so I can right. focus on it. And so I should probably start keeping a journal about all the specifics. But but yeah, it, at least this podcast, it, I can go back and be like, <laughs> go, go back to some of them while they're still in, on my mind a bit. So each book, as you release it, bring, come on the show and give us all the reasons and then yeah. we can <laughs> yeah. archive that for you. <laughs> well, may I just say that C.S. Lewis often didn't remember details from his own books. So you're actually in mm-hmm. very good company. <laughs> well, good. Yeah. If if uh, you can ever come up with the same sentence as C.S. Lewis, then that's right. That's that's yeah. where you want to be. Yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> as a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? So that changed over the years. I actually had in the school that I went to, there was like a, a book creation sort of unit every year for a few years. And in the back of those books, it would always have some sort of bio. And in a lot of those, I did say that I wanted to be an author. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was like an author and an artist. um, But author was pretty consistent, probably because it was on my mind, because that project was a book project, and I just really liked doing it. And I've always liked making books since I was a kid. In fact, I had a, there's a video game called uh, Reader Rabbit that you might have heard of, but there was oh, yeah. back in the day there was also one called Writer Rabbit, mm-hmm. and the Writer Rabbit it was kind of almost like a Mad Lib style type of thing, mm-hmm. but it gave you the feeling that you were creating your own story by filling in some of the details that were missing, right. Right. and they would give you an option at the end to print the story, and usually they were just a couple of paragraphs, but there was one that was like two hundred pages, Whoa. and I. I printed this out, but this is, again, this is when I was, I must have been like four years old or something. And so I I pressed like to print it and it just starts printing on my dad's like old dot matrix printer. Right. And so I don't know how many hundreds of dollars this cost <laughs> my father, but, but uh, he was pretty mad. This is like one of my early memories of like my dad being upset about something I did. I was just like, I'm just printing what this game says to print it when you're done. So I always liked the, I always liked the idea of producing something like seeing a story to completion in middle school. I would even make these animated movies with a 3d animated program that I had. And I just liked the idea of telling a story and then packaging it in a way that was nice and being able to give that to someone to experience. And so I think that that's always been something that I've loved to do. And eventually I decided, or I guess I put piece together more that like becoming an author doesn't just happen. Like you have to Mm -hmm. pursue it. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I started pursuing it. And yeah, now it's, now it's for real. (laughs) That's awesome. So, and you were one who was sort of slow to want to read or slow to be able to read. 
So how does a person who is not um, an avid early reader decide that they want to be a storyteller, do you think? I started reading extremely young. Okay. And what what the difference is, is as I got older, probably like fifth, like the kind of middle school years, mm-hmm. I it was something that was overwhelming to me and... I don't precisely know the exact reason, but it felt intimidating for some reason. Interesting. But I liked to create things. Mm. And so, and I think that's almost been, like even now, I, I enjoy reading books. I read a lot of books, especially on audiobook. But even if I compare mm-hmm. what I read to even what the average person who likes books reads, I'm far behind mm. on book count per year. Yeah. Um, I don't read that many books per year, but I just love to create things. And I think it's it's more of just a what I enjoy doing. I I do enjoy consuming content. I just get more satisfaction from the actual creation process. So making the thing has always been more interesting to me than consuming the thing, uh, whether that be books, movies, whatever it is. Interesting. You're a maker. That's what you are. I guess, yeah, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> I think that will actually resonate with some of our listeners. Um, for example, my son, my oldest, who's producing this right now for us, he is um, he's a maker. He just loves to tinker. He loves to build things. He loves to construct things. He doesn't necessarily care to experience things. He just wants to build it and make it happen. So I think he would be able to relate to that and find your story to be interesting. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it- well, and I also think for anyone who wants to write a book but doesn't maybe read as much as they feel like they should to be able to do that, there's so many there's so many people who will say, oh, to be a good writer, you have to read thousands and thousands of books and learn everything. But I actually think that's not true. I, I wonder how many people who saying that are just justifying their reading addiction. <laughs> um, but But for me, I actually find... And this is true, I think, for anything in life. Like, if you be who you are, you can discover how what might look like a shortcoming is actually your greatest advantage. And so I find that because I read slower, I'm more picky about what I read. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to read something, it better be amazing Mm -hmm. because I don't want to waste my time otherwise. And I think all of that goes into how I produce my own books. And so it's I'm very particular about not wasting the reader's time, uh, making sure everything is as, as engaging as possible. And all of these things are really important to me. And I think that actually, again, is why it helps kids who might be more of a reluctant reader or have trouble getting into reading because it's almost, it's designed with that in mind. It's Mm -hmm. designed with kind of someone like me in mind. And I think that actually ends up being an advantage rather than a disadvantage. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely agree with that. So I was a high school teacher before I was mom and I saw a lot of young people who wanted to be writers and they were pretty obsessive about writing Um, But it was really about self-expression more than it was telling a story. And Mm. self-expression is good on its own, but it isn't necessarily the thing that's going to create a book that's worth entering or create a world that's worth entering into. 
And one of the things I really did appreciate uh, very much about your story is I felt like I entered the world. I saw what I wanted to see. I have lots of things I still want to see. I have lots of questions I want to know answers to. But I didn't feel bogged down by a lot of unnecessary detail. You know, I think lean is better. And I think this story was delightful in that way because it allowed our imagination to fill in a lot of spaces. Um, it was very artfully done in that regard. And I enjoy having questions and wondering and wanting the next book because I do want to know. But along those lines, I want to know why robots? Because I'm wondering if there is a, like a deeper meaning behind robots. You know, is it the them being sort of distant and then people don't really have to see what's happening? Is it that kind of thing? Or is it just robots are cool? I mean, that's totally fair too. <laughs> First, I would regret if I don't rewind a second and go back to something I think that you said that was extremely important. So letting the reader's imagination fill in some blanks, I think mm -hmm. is key to giving people a great experience when they read a book. Yeah. And there's actually a photography principle where if you take a photograph of something and you leave out part of the uh, subject yeah. and let the viewer's imagination fill in what would be there, there's a psychological principle in photography that they develop a deeper connection to the photograph because they become an active participant. And I actually I think that. this is why people love reading in general mm -hmm. is because they're, you know, people love movies and other things too, but there's nothing quite like reading because you are forced to continually have active participation in the creation process with the writer. Mm -hmm. And so the more that I can allow that to happen naturally, for, whether it be world building or even just picturing the scene, right? that creates a more powerful experience because the reader feels more connected to the story than they would be if I gave them every single detail. Right. And which they can't keep track of versus if they're forced to imagine it, it becomes very real to them. As you've said, it's very personal. And so it becomes a place that they feel like they are in versus, oh, wait, I have to pay attention. Wait, the walls were green. Okay, there were books. Like You can't keep track <laughs> of all that many details. So this allows us to enjoy what's happening in the story while picturing it ourselves and letting it be our own. For the robots, I think that was actually something that was just always there, even in coming up with the idea you know, after I threw, up, threw out the Rex toy. <laughs> I remember I remember just like picturing robot like I was just picturing kind of the world and like the feeling of it mm -hmm. and just having sort of like dystopian style robots there made sense to me. I, I love the old C.S. Lewis books and I love reading The Hobbit and all these old children's mm -hmm. books that will just stand the test of time forever and ever. Right. But there is something that's very important about new stories mm -hmm. for kids too. Yeah. And you know, people have written about robots for a long time, but we're entering a new era where there's going to be a lot of new questions about not only robotics, but artificial intelligence. And there's going to be a lot of moral questions yes, and ways to think about this that kids are going to face. Right. And it will be their challenge more than ours. Yeah, they might not face it as kids, but preparing them for what that world might look like mm. now that we know a little bit more about what to expect, I think is extremely important. Mm. And 
the robots, they are in the first book as they are, mm -hmm. but that there will be new robots in each book mm -hmm. and they will have more sophistication in each story as well. And they all depict sort of a different way to look at how technology holds us down in some way and mm -hmm. makes us think that we might actually have freedom in having the technology in a lot of ways that we do, but also how it traps us. And that's more loose in the first book. It's it's more symbolic, yeah, but it'll be more literal in the sequels because that's that's something that's really important to me. That's that's uh, hopefully I can write the books fast enough where it, the AI stuff is <laughs> coming up fast. So, so. fast. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully it's not outdated by the time uh, I release. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that that's why I asked the question was I felt the malevolence of those particular robots. And I felt that this is not going to be a one-sided question. I know that. Um, but I felt that there's something more there. And I thought it was just so interesting that the, the robots make it so nice and tidy and clean for the people who are, quote unquote, in the lands of luxury to be completely oblivious to what's happening elsewhere. And I thought that's such an interesting barrier and it's one that we actually utilize right now ourselves, don't we? Yeah. And this is some backstory that, again, I don't think I, even in book two, I don't think I directly say this, but I, there's there's enough evidence there to piece it together where the robots, they're, they're programmed by someone else and mm -hmm. they're not even, it's not necessarily that they're programmed in a malevolent way, mm -hmm. but there's things that happen that, you can never expect. Right. And something designed for one context and then put in another context is actually how the robots in the first book are because they are, were originally sort of these police robots. And then they're they're repurposed to manage the trash thinking, oh, oh yeah. well, we can just reprogram it. But they have some of that old programming left and that's mm -hmm. why they act sort of the way they do. And so there's a lot of things where we expect technology to serve us in a particular way, but then the reality of it becomes different mm -hmm. as the context changes. And that's another piece that I'm exploring in books two and three. Interesting. I'm excited about that. Me too. I noticed that theme when I was reading too. I just love hearing when people notice those little subtle things. Again, like the names, but it goes beyond that into stuff like this or even just different lines of dialogue and connecting them and how people mm -hmm. pick up on that. You know, as a writer, I assume that no one will ever pick up on it, but it's just something that's really special to hear as the author that people, you know, they're not just reading the book to pass the time. They, like they're actually engaged with it in a way they're thinking about it beyond mm -hmm. just what it is as a fun story, but they're thinking about it again on that deeper level. Yeah. What it means because a fun story is fine, but what does it mean? If it means something and it causes us to feel something and think about things, that's a living book. That's what we want. We want to be feasting on those, not consuming them, but feasting on them. I have a, a kind of a bigger topical question. I don't want to derail Elsa and Greta. So girls, keep going. Which character is the most like you and why? Good question. I forget who brought it up in this discussion, but we were talking about how you don't want to like over put yourself like into it you don't want a book to just all be about you right right um, and so obviously the story has a lot of influences about things i believe and ways i think about the world 
but I do try to make the characters focused on something that isn't necessarily something that I'm dealing with. And so, uh, okay. whereas the first book I wrote, it was very much connected to things that I was, I was grappling with at the time. The character was very much on the same page with me. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, I was really challenging myself to try to implement themes and character arcs to characters who were believable because, you know, the kids aren't just like three versions of me in different ways. Uh, But I try to really make them their own characters. I definitely share something with all of them. Like I share a piece with probably every character in the book. And then even in book two, there's more of a direct like villain character, whereas Mm. the first book doesn't have as much of a direct villain. Right. And even with the villain, like you want to be mindful of not just making someone pure evil, but have like very real right complex very real reasons Mm -hmm. behind why they do things and so i try to have a piece of myself and all of them but it's more of a to have understanding with the character rather than just a a blueprint of myself on top of them but i i try really hard not to over relate to them because that's the other thing is if you also start to over relate to them you pull your punches on what the characters need to go through and you kind of make them not as flawed (laughs) because we don't like to see ourselves as flawed. (laughs) And so you lose your objectivity. Yeah. To bring your characters through a really like brutal character arc uh, of growth, (laughs) you kind of have to distance yourself from them a bit too. That makes sense. Well, I want to talk about a theme because I think this one's a really important one for parents who have adoption in their story to understand your perspective, where where you're going with it, because some families have a great deal of sensitivity on that subject. I really thought that the theme of possible adoption was beautifully done in this story. It was so real, it was complex, and it did not minimize the struggles that accompany this, even when it's right and good and beautiful, there is still there are still challenges related to adoption. Can you just tell us a little bit about why you would include that and where that's coming from and what where are you going with that, both for story, but also for parents who have adoption in their family story? Challenging question that I'm excited about. There's oh, so good. many ways. I, I thought of like 30 things that I could talk about with this. <laughs> I was nervous to have it in the book, but I felt it was very important. So it was difficult to know exactly how I wanted to handle it. And I don't have experience personally with adopting. Currently, I don't have any children. So it was, you know, in some ways a foreign concept, though there has been a lot of adoption in my family. And uh, okay. with that, everyone has such a different reasons mm-hmm. for it but from both sides, both from the child's mm-hmm. reason for needing to be adopted and right. from the parent's reason for choosing to adopt. yeah, And so in some ways that actually opens up things a little bit for some flexibility because yeah. I think people are aware of that. And actually in the second book, there's going to be additional families in there that, and they will have different, there'll be different struggles because that's the other thing too. Different kids will have different struggles. Right. Because all these kids need to be adopted because they're all orphans, right? Yeah, so I, I kind of I kind of duplicated the problem for myself that uh, in the first book I was like, oh, this is like actually challenging. But but the the thing about it was 
because I was so nervous about stepping on the wrong, like I just felt like it was thin ice and I didn't want to step on something the wrong way. So I really came at it at every single angle and sort of challenged myself. Okay. What if like someone could think about it this way, someone could think about that way. Someone could think about this way. Or if I do that, then this, then, and I just really came at it from all angles to try to fortify it where I know I can't please everyone, but at least to make it as thoughtful as possible. Yeah. And yeah. And then in the sequel, there's a, basically additional things to think about that I might've considered for the characters to go through in the first book, but I just had to choose yeah, a particular pick. path that made the most sense. Mm-hmm. And then so having that in the sequel for other characters is where it comes in. With anything though, if you're not writing something that's has some sort of challenge to handle, it's probably not worthwhile. <laughs> and so right. yeah. <laughs> I found it wasn't just that issue provided a challenge. There was lots of other things too, but this was definitely a big one that I, I didn't want to do the wrong way. Um, mm-hmm. And especially I, I didn't want to be thoughtless about it. So I really worked hard to do that. So many books these days will pit the kids against the parents or even the kids against each other. And in a future series, it's the whole family Oh, on an good. adventure yeah, and internal struggle too. Sure. But the family bond will be strong and be what makes it work. That's what we need. We need those stories desperately. I grew up in a really wonderful family, both my immediate and extended family. And so that's something that I know the value of. And mm. I just always have even from a young age have had that distaste for you know like like those old like disney channel shows where the the kids are just like mouthing off to the parents and stuff and even as a kid like it just wasn't cool to me and i'd like to see i'd like to be a part of the culture that is pro-family and that is both families who are biological families but it's also families that come together in other ways whether it be sort of this you know like in the lands of luxury, the sort of the found family theme and mm-hmm. specifically for this book with adoption. Mm-hmm. But I think genuine care for each other. And even though we have struggles, like at the end of the day, everyone has each other's backs. Well, I thought that one of the things that came through really well in that sequence of storytelling was that we were allowed to say this is one lived or really three lived experiences here. This is just a sample of what this is, but these are authentic and relatable feelings. These are uh, relatable experiences. I especially liked Mark's take on it, his own anxiety about it. I thought that that was really, really valuable. And as you say, did a beautiful job of showing that this is not an us versus them, um, Yarborough versus um, the lands of luxury kind of thing. It's not a kid versus parent thing. This is really about community, and I I loved that. So I appreciated that, and I wanted to thank you for that. And I just wanted families who have adoption in their storyline to be able to hear that and know that this story tries very hard to honor and respect that experience, doesn't try to um, make light of it or um, do any damage because of it. I think Mark is the reason actually why it works Mm -hmm. because of the struggle. The other angle I wanted to avoid was I didn't want it to 
be, oh, now the kids that are not well off are just being adopted and it's just sort of this generic thing. And yeah, I think giving Mark that struggle where he doesn't feel like he can provide what Jane deserves, mm-hmm. I think having that in his character actually ends up making it work because very quickly, instead of question marks going up and being like, what, now that... Now there's going to be like this adoption thing and what I don't know. Mm-hmm. You it instead puts you in his story. in the mindset to root for yeah. You want to mm-hmm. root for you mm-hmm. want to root for it to work out, and so that's important to establish in a way. And I think without Mark's struggle and without the scenes from his perspective, I think it would be on shakier ground. <laughs> the story would be more flat because it really would have all just been about Jane. Yeah. And here, this is not about Jane. This is really actually about a people, a group of people, potentially a family. I loved that because it is the magic that made it work because it shows the complexity of the situation. And you cannot understand complexity if you're only understanding it from one person's point of view, I don't think. Who do you think this book is perfect for? Like, who are you writing for? It's really important to me that the books that I write for kids are equally maybe even more compelling to adults. Mm. Kids are, they don't want to be talked down to. And I think not being afraid to tackle big topics for kids, that's really important to me. So kids who are wanting to be, want to go on like a meaningful journey Mm -hmm. with the book, Mm -hmm. but also like keeping the whole family in mind. And it makes it really difficult because you have to think about everything on so many different levels. It has to work on the basic story level so that a seven-year-old can follow everything. Right. But then also a 13-year-old has to get something more out of it. Enjoy it. Yeah. And then further, an adult has to be able to enjoy it as well. So it's like (laughs) adds all these challenges to it. And they tell you not to like, you don't want to really write for everyone because then you're kind of writing for no one. So I do really focus on writing for the kids in that 7 to 13 age range. Anything that provides that deep experience where the whole family can get something out of it, bond together, and enjoy a good story. Marvelous. Well, we really appreciate that. If it's encouraging, as I I mentioned that Michael was listening into it when I was about the names. He's 16, and I'm pretty sure he was enjoying it. Yes, he was. (laughs) That is encouraging to hear, and it's so funny. So I've been doing a lot of local events. We're showing up at those events thinking, okay, try to focus on the moms and dads and grandparents that come that might have kids Mm -hmm. uh, or if they're coming by. And I was actually shocked that one of the most popular uh, types of people to actually end up purchasing the book are teens. And so – it's interesting because the middle grade is like the technical term for mm-hmm. the, that 7 to 13 range. And then kind of above that, you get into YA. And it's generally thought that like the YA kid will look down on like the more like, like books that are written for a younger audience and just be like, oh, that's not the cool stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's I have a lot of credit to the early success of the book goes to my cover designer. Her name's Sylvia B. And she just did a fantastic job. It is gorgeous. Yeah. I think she just captures the feel of the book so well. Mm-hmm. And I think that when people see that cover, 
they're immediately intrigued by it, no matter what age they are. And I think that has been such a blessing for me since, like I was saying, it's so important for me to have the whole family enjoy it. Do you have an idea of how many books are going to be? In this particular series? Mm -hmm. So there's the short story called Doomed Dune. And you can actually get that for free on my website. It is a newsletter sign up. You can unsubscribe at any time. You could count that if you wanted to, but the main full book series is going to be three books. Nice. And those are all outlined. I know general everything that's going to happen, but there'll be even in redrafting the second book, there's always a lot of surprises to me too. But yeah, unless there's a big surprise and there's, I have to split the third book up for some reason, then there would be more. But I really want to do three books for this particular one. Wonderful. I love trilogies. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Trilogies feel right. You know, there there's enough to get something out of it, but not so much that you're like, wait, is this number six or number seven? (laughs) I should say too, in my, again, my distaste for cliffhangers, the first book uh, was originally written as a standalone. So it felt like it could go either way. People who yeah. are not liking series, I know that they're out there. I believe Di- it was Diane. mentioned earlier that <laughs> Diane is one of these people. Yeah. I have you in mind. <laughs> it, there's no cliffhanger, but it is open to new stories to take place later, which is what the sequel is. It's a new story with the same characters and nice. some additional ones. Nice. Uh, and <laughs> Two and three are a little more tied together, but even there, there's full character arcs. You get a satisfying ending with, um, you know, but maybe there might be some teases for what's in the third book. Just like in this interview, I teased a little (laughs) bit that the doll will be back and more information will be provided. And that's the other piece is the, the biggest questions will be answered throughout the series. Um, but yes, not all of them are answered in the first book. I know that that bugs some people. Uh, but again, I don't like to answer it unless it's precisely important for that particular story. And it right. is for the later books. Right. Yeah. I hate cliffhangers, so yeah. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> Especially when the author is still writing things like, oh, come on, I have to wait a couple of years now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is great. I'm so glad we got to talk. I'm so glad that you reached out to us and that we've had the joy of having your story live in our hearts. And we have this beautiful book reviewed on our website in two ways. I reviewed it. So mamas, you can go ahead and and take a listen to that. But Elsa reviewed it, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. And that is the take of an 11-year-old and what she thinks of it. And I think she did an excellent job today here on the podcast. And um, so you can go and check out her review as well. John, do you have an idea of when book two might be headed out? It will be out in 2024. I'm aiming for summer 2024. But again, the newsletter will be the best place to keep up to date on exactly what the release date will be. Perfect. So you would love it if people would come and subscribe to the newsletter. They can follow you on Instagram. Um, Where else do you want people to follow you? Obviously your website and all of this will be linked in our show notes. Yeah, those are really the two best ways. Great. You can always email me too if you want. John, there's no H in John, by the way. It's Mm -hmm. Mm J-O-N. So john at johntilton.com is a great way to reach out if you have any questions or want to get in touch. 
Uh, or if you have a school that you want me to visit, or I do virtual visits as well. Uh, anyone from homeschool families that want an author visit to public schools or Christian schools, um, open to all those things. And I really enjoy doing them, uh, just like I enjoyed doing this interview. Yay, lovely. Thank you very much, John. This has been terribly interesting, and I'm so glad that you were able to come. I agree, John. Thank you so very much. We appreciate you. We appreciate your stories, and we appreciate your time today and joining us. We've uh, really enjoyed getting to know you and look forward to chatting with you more in the future. Greta and Elsa, delighted to have you here, and thank you for taking up the heavy load of asking questions today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was, was a bit tricky. <laughs> <Sometimes>. <laughs> you girls did great. So friends, we would love for you to check out John's book. Head over to our website where you can see our reviews. Now, let me tell you a little secret. You can buy this book in lots of ways and in lots of places. But I really do want to recommend that if you order it directly from John, it's going to get all these extra little touches of TLC. And if you look at our review, you'll see what I mean. It's worth it, my friends. So consider that. Um, also, the audio is brilliant. I really enjoyed the audio. Yeah. And I'm very picky about audio, and I really enjoyed the audio. Greta, you did too? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. so if you're buying a physical book mm -hmm. through the website, you can get it signed and personalized as well. This is another trick if you have a reluctant reader, mm. is if you have a book signed and personalized by the author, the likelihood of them picking up the book goes like through the roof. So I love it. <laughs> I, so that if you're looking for a strategy to get people reading, mm -hmm. that's a good one. And you can even, I set up discount code if you put, what is it, Plumfield? I think I it's think. just Plumfield, yeah. Yeah, I think, It'll, it's in the, if it's, it's not, I'll make one that's just Plumfield too. So if you <laughs> if you write Plumfield, you can get, I think it's 10% yeah. off the book. So And friends, that's not an affiliate link. We want John to keep all of that. So if you use that discount code, it's just his gift to you. It doesn't benefit us at all, except that it makes us very happy that you're supporting him because the more we support him, the more good stories for families we get. So that's that's part of why we're doing this. So friends, we would love to invite you into this conversation. You can follow us in all the normal places. And we also would love for you to come and chat with us inside the BiblioGuides online community. And that's a mighty network. It's totally free. We'd love to have you join us. So friends, thanks so much for being here. And until next time.